It's here in the city. It's here in the city. This is here in the city. This is here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. I'm Sarah Harris. New message. Truth should be truth. But then it depends on, in the telling, whose truth is it. We're here most Tuesdays, bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape and mapping the city with voices of creative social change in and around Los Angeles. On Pacifica Radio, powered by the people, thanks to the generous support of you, our listeners, the capable crew at KPFK, the innovators of web-based radio at SoundCloud, news you might have missed at newsdesk.org, and the community-funded reporting project, Spot Us. You can find us on the web at here in the city. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. So we've been airing a series of audio art pieces honoring the natural elements in the urban space. Today's element, earth. We'll spend most of our program exploring the fundamental issues that arise when a piece of land is set aside for public park use at a time when disinvestment in open and unexploited spaces has become the norm in the state of California. Yes, that's a helicopter. Yes, this is radio outside of the studio. So first, we're offering this meditation on Earth from award-winning radio journalist and poet, Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Earth. Tierra. Tierra. Earth. Earth. Quartz. Gold. Columbus. Gold. Fortune. Colony. Money. Death. Misery. My uh, cousins have farms down in Texas. Dairy farms, cattle farms, stuff like that. And I know that when we've gone to visit, they're always working. Like, it just seems like there's no downtime. And um, they're hard workers, and they love it. It's like addiction. Being from the Midwest uh, right now, that's what we have. We have a lot of corn, a lot of wheat, earthworms. (laughs) No, I wouldn't want to be a farmer. A few times um, for a school project, we had to grow beans. And um, my beans never grew. I tried like 10 times, they never grew. Since I was, since I remember, my uh, parents always grow corn. Actually, it was all corn that we grow back in uh, Zacatecas. And we didn't have uh, equipment. We didn't have, not even have, uh, everything has to be done by hand, actually, with the, with the hole. 
and uh, but I enjoy it. I mean, uh, it was for me at that time. Uh, I was only when I start doing this. Uh, I was like five years old, maybe, and it was fun. I mean, I didn't have to do a lot of work, but he has help. I was doing. I wasn't doing that bad in Mexico. I get a good. Jo- I get a good job. I was working on a foundry. I was making uh, probably four times what everybody was doing. The regular wages. I was making maybe four times. But a, uh, a friend of mine uh, asked me if we can come because his brother was here already, and he was doing good. So I said, Yeah, why not? Let's go. And at that time, you know. Me and he and I, we figured that it would be only like a year. And one year, you know, uh, save our money, come back to Mexico, buy a, a car, and you know, that was it. But I never went back. I grew up on Long Island, and at that time, in the 50s and 60s, and you didn't have to travel that far to still see land that had not been developed, and that's what I'm talking about. I think there were potato farms and other kinds of, you know, crops that might have been, or orchards, um, you know, that, and slowly but surely, things have been bought, uh, you know, the property has been bought up. What I see here living, and I currently live in California and driving along the freeways, and you go up towards Oxnard, and I know that there were strawberry farms and ter- now in Orange County towards Irvine. There are lots of open land that were uh, the Irvine Ranch. I believe that was initially all agriculture, and now it's all housing. So every time there are large plots of land that I see, it does hurt, you know. And then if I, in a couple of years from now, they're gone. Adolfo Guzman Lopez's piece originally was broadcast with the Radio Sonideros Collective on the Staten Island Ferry as part of an experimental floating radio station called the FM Ferry Experiment. We will have a link to it on our website, hereinthecity.org, and you can also see a map at radiosonideros.org. This July, the city unveiled a 12-acre marble terraced garden that serves as a playground and a promenade to the white granite tower of City Hall. It has a Starbucks and Zumba, splash pads. It has security guards. Grand Park is a municipal park, and it's part of a land use vision for Los Angeles that is manicured and is afraid of Occupy protesters turning up the earth. Perhaps this will be our Central Park. Perhaps not. 
So let's go about one mile east and slightly north of Grand Park and City Hall to map a less defined park space in the urban landscape. It's a 32-acre spit of land flanked by rail lines, bus depots, cold storage warehouses, and a natural confluence of the Los Angeles River. It's called the cornfield by most people who know it, and it's called the Los Angeles Historic State Park by officials. The land was acquired through a joint venture of state parks, the Annenberg Foundation, and the Natural Resources Defense Council back in 2001. While new as a state park, it has long been a space for human activity, from Tongva hunting and gathering to intensive agro-industrial rail commerce during the last century. The park is divided into three spaces. On the south, it's a grassy knoll with trees. On the northern end, it's a constantly evolving native plant garden with huge rainwater tanks and sophisticated conservation irrigation. In the middle, well, I call it the county fairgrounds. But let's start with the garden. My name is Kuko, and right now, we'll we're in the, uh, let's call it the, let's say north, south, east. I would say the eastern side of the, of the cornfield, or what was the cornfield. This is the garden, it's called the, the metabolic garden. And what we're doing here is we're weeding, de-weeding. But it's a special process. You can't just go in like I did when I started and do the agricultural technique and just get the shovel, turn the soil and, and sift out the soil. It's, it's a different process because these are natural plants and, and if you disturb the soil too much, then all the helpers that are growing alongside of them, they don't, they don't grow. And uh, they're the ones that nourish the, the natural plants through the rough cycles. So like right here, there's some salvia, right? Yes. This one, some sage. And then all these little plants that to me look like, like see little this weeds. This, see, this one here is lupin. And this one stays. And if you look carefully, you'll see, every now and then you'll see a poppy. What does it mean to you um, as a place in Los to Angeles? Me, to me, this means that, that, that there's hope that, that we can have a place that we can learn as I am doing and anyone who might come here uh, because uh, Olivia Chumacero, our instructor here, she is, uh, has these classes that teaches us about natural herbs and, and how they grow and how, how they grow with the seasons and how they're affected by the seasons and, and the bad soil and, and the, the bad air and, and all those different elements. Everywhere, you know, you have you have seasons because there's a relationship to everything. The relationship is water, soil, air, and what what is growing in the soil, and the heat, how much temperature, and so the relationship of all those integrate together to create different seasons. And each plant follows its season. And in the Southern California native plants, you have plants that 
are dormant in the summer. And people usually equate summer to uh, the normal kind of agriculture, in intensive agriculture that people do, right? But you have many plants that are native that become dormant in the summer, and that's how they're able to survive the heat. And Stay right there. Mm. Could I ask you um, what your name is and where we're at right now? My name is o Olivia Chumacero, and we are in the anabolic uh, area of the downtown California State Historic Park. The anabolic is all this area that was designed by artist uh, Lauren Bond, and this is her living sculpture. We are taking care of the plants, the native plants. Um, what kind of plants are here? Okay, we have uh, ceanothus and sage and uh, manzanitas and uh, in this area and hummingbird, sage and chia and lupin and of course the state flower, the mary, the poppy. <laughs> Biodiversity that we have here. Of course the soil had to was contaminated. This was a brown field and part of that process was done when Lauren planted 32 acres of corn to clean the soil and draw those you know, contaminants out of the soil. And now it's been eight years of us working, especially on this side of the park. We do everything in an organic manner. We don't introduce any uh, you know, chemicals into the soil and we take care of everything as best we can in a organic and natural manner. It's about... 10 acres maybe? Yeah, from where the tree lines are, where they planted the tree people in the state park, they planted those trees. Those are all indigenous trees to the southwest, not just California. And it's a 13 acre area. And so all this area, all the plant life that you see is uh, native to, this, to the, uh, this part of California. But of course there's a lot of invasives and what we try to do is take out the invasives by hand and try to help the soil repair itself by, by doing it as unobtrusive as we can. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. You are listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. 93.7 FM in San Diego. And 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. An archive and a podcast of our shows is at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. And at kpfk.org, you can like us on Facebook. If you like. And visit us at our website, hereinthecity.org. And follow us on Twitter. When the parkland was purchased in 2001, it was far from acceptably clean for public use. An artist, Lauren Bond, had the vision to go forward and remediate the soil with the very crop that gives this piece of land its name, the cornfield. Our radio collective, Radio Sonideros, spent one year documenting the site in 2004 as Lauren Bond was planting a field of corn and mobilizing a community of artists and activists to deeply consider the earth and the site. Adolfo Guzman Lopez looked into the soil and the geology that the land art project, not a cornfield, was dealing with. Humans arrived in the LA Basin more than 10,000 years ago. 
They found the lands around the LA River fertile with fish and wild fruit. Europeans began arriving in the late 1700s. Soon, the river was flanked by fields of wheat and grapevines. The town prospered. Commerce and manufacturing supplanted the fields over time. Train tracks replaced plant roots. The cornfield became a train station for the people and goods that came to the growing, hungry city. My name is Ted Yarajo. I'm a project manager with the Department of Toxic Substances Control, and I oversee uh, hazardous waste site cleanups. I guess it's a pretty general way of describing it. There are definitely you know, very specific projects, cornfield being a former rail yard, one of them. Um, as far as the soil types, you know, a lot of a lot of sand there and everything. It's um, one of the one of the interesting things, given the history and everything. We were surprised how little contamination we found at the property once we did our investigation. We were thinking, you know, given that it was a former rail yard since the late 1800s, there'd be a lot of you know impacts from the property. And surprisingly, once we did our preliminary investigation, it, it didn't turn out to be that way. We pretty much we performed every type of analyses on it. You know anything for like metals, um, TPH, uh, total petroleum hydrocarbons. You know for like oil and gasoline. And you know surprisingly, as I, I may have stated before, we did not find that much. It really it was limited to only three different contaminants that were the ones of uh, main concern, and those were arsenic, lead, and then total petroleum hydrocarbons. Of these last uh, chemicals, uh, tell me about how toxic or how dangerous they are. Well, really anything can be toxic, it just depends on what the levels are. And like for arsenic, for example, I think the highest levels that we found were 110 milligrams per kilogram, milligrams per kilogram or parts per million. And what we use for a cleanup goal for a park or residential use standard is 10 parts per million so you could see the, the magnitude that was there. A local legend says corn grew from kernels dropped from freight cars. The young corn stalks grew scattered in between the rails. In the year 2005, artist Lauren Bond planted corn on the 32-acre site. She called the project not a cornfield. What we're trying to do is to take a brown field and turn it into a piece of land clean enough for people to be able to eat off of it in one season. So the idea was um, to take the state park, uh, which is currently the brownfield we're talking about, and buy a crop of corn, uh, redeem the land so that when the state park begins its design work, they're thinking about the site differently. They'll be thinking about the site not only as uh, what it was, which is the old railway yard, but start to think about it in different terms. With big machines and shovels, the workers set about to transform the soil. Salvador Bautista oversaw the planting. I saw the soil, and the soil didn't look didn't look that good. I mean, it was some area was like even base that, that regular base that you use for roads pave the roads and rocks all over trash but the good thing that was there were there were weeds in there so that means if the weeds that mean the soil is, is not that bad and and what we do is just get s- soil samples from different places on the, on the site and we send them to be tested for uh, fertilization to see 
if the soil is fertile, to plant whatever seed or grass or whatever. And what did you find about the different places? Which one is better, was better and which one was not as good? Uh, the quality of the soil right now is, is rich in minerals. Uh, and also, uh, I don't know if you know this, but the, the, the corn, when you grow corn in, in one area, if there is any, any uh, chemicals bad to, to your health in the, in the, in the, in the soil, the roots from the corn, it, I mean, takes that out of the soil, removes it from the soil, but it doesn't go into the corn ears. You can, you can, and somehow, I guess, you can say this a medical plant, if you want to call it that way, corn, because it absorbs the, the, chem, the bad chemicals from the soil, but it doesn't do nothing to the, to the corn ears or to the stalks. You can feed them to the cows and it, they won't die. I don't know. It's something that does the way that the plant is. Corn cleans the soil. Yes, it does. Corn cleans the soil. That's the sound of men shoveling corn, the corn produced by this field. We've taken much from this patch of earth. Now the soil is resting. The cornfield will rise again. The laughter of children and families will be the new crop. So let's flash forward to today. Under the pressures of shrunken state budgets and opportunistic city planning, the future uses of this narrow stretch of earth swings in the balance, somewhere between becoming nothing more than a county fairground for raves and circuses and embracing a native plant oasis. Both spaces have a killer view of downtown, but... These are two uses that cannot coexist. Next to the anabolic studio gardens, State Parks resides in a farmhouse red prefab unit that looks like something out of Dwell magazine. My name is Sean Woods. I'm the superintendent for California State Parks here in Los Angeles, and we are at Los Angeles State Historic Park, uh, known locally as the Cornfield. I went there to talk to the rangers about why state parks would even want to host private Cirque Berserk and Live Nation Hard Festival events on a public site. You know, uh, we, we bought the site of 32 acres in uh, 2001 for $33 million, um, and uh, that, that we purchased it clean to park residential standard. And um, at the time, we didn't have any money for development. So the, the, the governor at the time, Governor Gray Davis, set aside $1.5 million for what we called an interim public use park, IPU. And so what we did is we developed about 12 to 13 acres of the southern half of the park. Um, so we would allow a place for people to come out to experience the park, to recreate. And then it was a place for us to build political support to, to uh, fundraise for the permanent development. So this is interesting. So building political support to fundraise for the park, is that really something that is new to have to think about, you know, to, to leverage and to figure out, well, how do we make this viable within the context of a, of a large city? Absolutely. We're, we're operating in a completely different economic universe, you know. Um, state parks, the, the traditional model is that they buy a piece of land and the resource is already intact, whether it's a redwood or some significant geologic formation or some cultural building. Here we had a blank slate to work with and uh, the cost of doing business in the urban core is extremely expensive. Um, you know, in, in the past, you know, if you go back to the 70s, you know, uh, people paid their taxes 
and that paid for you know public education. There was there was pretty good public education in the 60s and 70s, and you know it paid for parks. You know we were pretty much 80 to 90 percent of our budget came from taxpayer supported general fund support. Now we're down to 27 percent. So we're reliant on the the remainder for revenue generation to make us whole in terms of our budget. Um, when I came into Los Angeles in 2001, I was giving um, um, a bare-bones skeleton budget to operate real, really uh, vacant lots. And since that time, I've opened three state parks with no increase in budget. So the mandate for a lot of parks now in the state is to come up with a, um, um, an economic model for sustainability. And that's how we kind of got involved with the special event program. It sort of found us, we found it. You know, promoters came and saw this site as this spectacular chunk of open space in downtown Los Angeles. We initially envisioned just doing cultural events. And, you know, in, in, in the perfect world, I would like to, you know, be doing, you know, Shakespeare in the Park and free concerts. Um, but we, what we end up doing is doing large-scale music festivals, which helps a lot of the free to the public community events like health fairs. And that's, that's the bottom line is that we don't want to lose sight of the fact that we're here to build a park, first and foremost, for the community. We're a public entity. We're a government or government organization, so we're not a special event venue. Mind you, the renting of the state park for private functions has been going on for over two years now. And the sound, when it's there on the site, travels for miles. The events go on until 2 a.m. sometimes. Los Angeles Police Department will not enforce existing city noise ordinances. The police provide security detail for the raves and the concerts, so they're compromised. In November, 35,000 people flooded into the state park for a Day of the Dead concert hosted by Live Nation. The sound shook the windows in homes over a mile away. People complained. Concert promoters issued a rare apology. It was published in the downtown news. But state parks is sticking with its economic model regardless. So here's my question to state parks and to the city. Is it legal to regularly cut off public access and charge for entry to a public park that we paid for with our tax dollars? Why does the city of Los Angeles issue permits to violate its own ordinances on land that belongs to the public? Money might just be the easy answer, but here's another question. Who suffers and who benefits? I will let Olivia Chumacero of the Anabolic Studio have the last word. This is a gym that they're not realizing is a gym. A gym as far as something precious. Okay? To be able to have an area of land in the middle of this urban reality that we have created for ourselves as a city, as a metropolis, and have a small area of land that is actually going to be taken care and nurtured in such a manner that we bring back all the flora and the fauna that is indigenous to the land here, that is, it behooves us to do it because we are already one of the hot spots in the world, meaning a hot spot in the, in the world of plants and animals is an area that had luscious, vibrant, a lot of diversity in the flora and the fauna, and now is less than, seven, 75% of it is gone, if not more. And we're down to very few, very few 
plants and animals that are indigenous to the land that can actually survive. Because we've taken over so much of the land, or cemented it, or put structures, and so these plants and these animals can no longer thrive. And we need to have that here. And we have the opportunity. We have actually an, a great opportunity to do that in a, in a small area that is completely surrounded by all the you know, industry and business and housing and all the asphalt and roads and everything that we have built. But yet here is a small area of land that if we were to be wise, if we were to look at the land as something that is a, an heirloom for the future generations that we can nurture right now, instead of designing it so intensely that you don't allow for the plant life to be present that should be here, that should be representative of what this land provides. That's it for Here in the City today. Many thanks to Jesse Lerner, Alvaro Parra, Holly Harper, the Radio Sonideros Collective, and to Matt Perez at KPFK. We'll be back next week with our last element in the series, water. I'm Sarah Harris. Signing off. To yapping on. When you go in and out, may you have peace and level and safe. Yes. Be safe. Peace.